Hello and welcome to the Addicts Anonymous podcast. I'm your host, Jamar. Today's episode 141, and we're going to be interviewing Will R. How are you doing, Will? I'm doing good, sir. Thanks for having me on. No, I'm, I'm excited for this. I'm glad to have you. So let's dive in and get started. Tell me about your childhood. <laughs> uh, well, I was born to uh, teenage parents. My mother was 16. My father had just turned 18 when I was born. Uh, from a little small town with one red light uh, over in uh, central Florida-ish area. And it was, uh, you know, going, going as far back as I can remember, it was chaos. My mother came from a, a family of, of lifelong alcoholics. Uh, she was one of, of seven uh, children that my grandmother and grandfather had had. Um, by the time I was uh, Three, I want to say my my mom and my mom and dad had moved to Oklahoma with me. We had my my younger sister there. My dad had went to uh, an aeronautics school uh, in Oklahoma, um, and I don't I don't have many memories of of early childhood that were uh, that were good or bad. Uh, I remember. Growing up, uh, while we were in Oklahoma, my, my, it was odd that I remember this, but my mother and father would allow me to go to church uh, with, with, they would show up in the school bus, and she would let me go as, as a three-year-old, and, and I find that as a parent today, I find that just insane that she would just let me go with basically strangers. Um, you know, that, that was a memory that I, that I heard and, and we'll get to that, that too, kind of like where my, where my recovery journey had, has went, uh, through that. Um, another memory I had when I was, when I was about three, four years old, we had, uh, what we call a captain's bed. It was like a really tall bed. And my father was, he, he was an auto mechanic, uh, during the day. So he was, he was getting ready to go to work and I was leaning, I was standing on top of the bed leaning out, looking through the window and I had fallen and the blinds had caught me. And, and I was hanging there basically you know, choking and my mother come running in and she grabbed me and saved me. And she, and I remember it like it was yesterday and she gave me a spanking. And yeah. years later I would ask like, why would you do that? And she was like that. I didn't know another response, you know? And so that was kind of like early childhood. Uh, by the time by the time I started kindergarten, we had moved back to Florida. We were living in Jacksonville, Florida at the time. And it was, uh, you know, a lot of my dad always worked. I love my dad. I love my mom too, you know, but she was, she was the alcoholic and that would progress over the years to where she, from, from alcohol to pills, to a, struggling heavily with, with mental illness. And my, my father always worked. And he always did what we needed to do to have, we had shelter, we had food, we had clothes. Uh, but he also meant that mom had what she needed to keep her addictions fed. And growing up, I, I can't count the number of times that the, the police would come to the house or, you know, there would be fights and, and you know, plates break in. And it was just throughout. Was, those are the memories that I have of my childhood of just, just, just toxic chaos. Uh, do you over. think, do you think that's why you don't have memories of your earlier childhood? Do you think maybe you kind of blacked it out? I, I think so. Um, Cause there's, 
so my, I'm three years older than my sister. So as, as I kind of get into my early teenage years and she was coming out of that early adolescence, there are things that I remember that she doesn't and things that she remembers that I don't. And, and we both kind of had those same experiences, but how we, I guess, processed, processed them uh, was, was different. So I definitely think there was a lot of there was there's a lot of suppression that had happened. And over the years, there have been things through through my recovery walk where I, I would get a, a, a glimpse of a memory and was able to kind of work through that and process it and don't really have you know full grasp of the whole the whole event but I did see things that kind of gave me an aha moment as uh, so this is probably why you know I have this behavior or this is why I feel this way about a certain thing because it was just you know just things that pop up o- over the years so how was your social life growing up did you have friends did- were you a popular guy or? Yeah, not really. I mean, we, we moved around. Uh, we, we stayed in the general area, but just say like elementary schools, for example, I went to five different elementary schools. Uh, we lived in multiple different parts of town. There was a period of time where our parents had separated. So there was kind of that, you know, the weekends I was with dad and then I was with mom other days. So I never really had a a like a, a neighborhood friends that you you would grow up in and by the time we finished up one school year I'm in another school and it was a lot of starting over again and that was yeah that was that was a little rough uh because there was you know my mother she she was a day drinker she was a night drinker it was it was just a constant thing so there was she had this fear of the outside world and when, even when we lived in a place that you would have considered safe to be able to go out and play, wasn't allowed to do that. So we were very much confined, you know, in our home, eyesight, and and never never really, you know, played as a kid. If that if, sounds crazy to even say it now, and I've told the story a hundred times, but we just weren't allowed to do that. Um, didn't really start to experience some normalcy in my childhood until I started the sixth grade. We had moved. Um, my parents had gotten back together and we were renting a house for a while. And then there was an opportunity where my dad could buy the house. So this was like this was like a big deal. You know, we spent a lot of time in apartments or trailer parks. And now we're in this you know nice neighborhood, suburban Um had some stability so then I was a little older and there was uh, uh I remember these there were the Morgans they lived two houses down they had a, a basketball goal on the street and they just invited all the all the neighborhood kids were able to come over there and play and it was like a perfect location to play basketball because it was right next to a street light so we could play until 10 11 o'clock at night and that was kind of like my first opportunity to be out and engage with with other people outside of the house and it was also good because there was a lot of times where the inside of the home was just toxic and so I didn't have to experience it because I was able to get out some um so that was around sixth grade uh kind of the same same it was the same uh how do I want to work and completely disrespectful of, of my parents it was it was just toxic you would have seasons where it was it was okay and it was tolerable and then 
there would be, you know, mom would drink and then there would be that night where she would, she'd want another bottle. And, you know, dad would try to put his foot down and say, no, you know, we're not getting any more. So then she'd try to get into the car and drive. And it was, and then that would kind of set off a, another season of, it was just, you know, heavy consumption, heavy toxicity, and then it would kind of slow down and then it would pick back up again. And it was just this repeated cycle of just unhealthy behavior over and over and, and, and over again. And this uh, affected you probably quite a bit. Uh, heavily, uh, heavily uh, affected me but to a point to where I did not, I didn't realize it until I was, until I was later in life. So I was, you know, around 13 or so, I was still trying to like struggling to fit in. So I'd gotten, um, you know, started smoking a little weed and was, was really was selling more than I was smoking because I, I didn't really care for it a whole lot. But who was the first time? <clears throat> who, what was the first time that you ever did a drug? Uh, the first time I ever did, um, first time I ever smoked weed, I was right before I turned 13. Um, so I was, it was in the summer from, uh, in between sixth grade and seventh grade. And, uh, there was some, there were some older kids that were a couple years older that we'd play basketball with. And then they were going to go play basketball in the neighborhood next door. And, and, and I had went with them and one thing led to another and, you know, you now you're here and, you know, trying to fit in and, and, and why not? Um, the first time, how did it make you feel? Um, I went to sleep. <laughs> I went to sleep. Uh, I was the first time I just went to sleep. And the second time I had went, uh, we went back to the same place and everybody was doing it. And there was a, uh, there was another group of, of people that were there. So this was like the neighborhood, you know, this was the neighborhood drug house. Like everybody just hung out there. It was, place that as a parent now I would never allow my kids to go um but there were there was a group there that was they weren't just smoking weed they had also they were also taking acid and there was one guy in particular that had it, it just it hit him the wrong way and he was he was running through the house and hiding in the closet with a big old cleaver and he was just he thought somebody was trying to get him like it, it was scary so I'm like two times high on weed first time I had fallen asleep. So I'm just in a whole nother level of like, what is going on here? And so I was like, what is wrong with that guy? And they're like, oh, well, he just, you know, he's having a bad trip and like, okay, well, whatever he did, I don't want anything to do with that ever. So uh, that was probably a saving grace for me because I like, I would later in life realize that I just like doing things that I wasn't supposed to do. Uh, but that experience really kept me from some of that, some of that crazy stuff. Um, but yeah, so uh, I think, you know, that was kind of like my early high school experience was a lot of the same way. I'd kind of gotten to a place where I had a reputation. Um, my, my, my name, you know, is, is William. A lot of people called me Willie. Um, so I had this nickname of, of Willie weed for a long time. And, you know, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes, you know, uh, bad attention is, 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 is good. Um, when you're, you're kind of starving to, you know, be, be involved with something, be connected with something. And so I just, I just embraced it and, 
you know, kind of continued to go on, you know, down, down that path. Um, and kind of took a break from it when I was, I was 16. I had a, a another group of friends. They started, uh, they were going to a little small church in our area. So I started hanging out with them. Uh, even though I didn't come from a, a background of, you know, my parents never went to church or, or anything like that. I, I had a little more freedom when I would tell you know, my mother and my father, I was like, Hey, I'm going to go to church with these guys. So I was able to have, you know, I could get in a car and just go just because of what I said I was going to do and kind of had a real, a real tight group of, of, of people and, and things were, I had kind of moved to, I still had like the reputation of being the guy that was, you know, playing with weed, but never, um, I kind of got away from it. And the why why do you think you got away from it? Um, you know, like I I got in a place where there were I was having real community, real friendships. I started to see that there were people in this world that did not grow up like I did. Like there were there were people that had parents who were healthy who genuinely were concerned about them from a healthy place and these these people inevitably they were strangers they they kind of like took me in and I was uh, you know part of the part of their family I mean just yesterday I went to the 50th wedding anniversary of one of my friend's parents from that time period because they were they were they were so instrumental in my life and and they cared about me in a way that they didn't have to um, and I didn't, and I, I wanted to please them. Like I, I wanted to be, I want, I wanted to be good. I wanted to, you know, and, and I would get affirmation from them. And so I think that's, that was, that was why, um, it was, it was just a different experience. You know, you saw, you saw people that were, they were far from perfect, but they were genuinely happy. You know, they had, they had a joy that, that I had not experienced. And now I'm, you know, 16, almost 17 years old and, and they had it. So I had really just immersed myself into, into, into their life. Um, and they embraced me and, and took me in it. And it was, it was, it was good um, for, for a season. And my right towards the end of my senior year in high school. And see, that was the thing. like my, I always said that I would never drink. I would never drink because of what I had experienced growing up. And there was, there was a time I was, I was involved with, I was involved with, with the church and we were getting ready. We had raised up a bunch of money and we're going to go to Disney and we're going to go on this youth group trip. And uh, I came home from school that afternoon and it was the weekend before we were supposed to leave. And my mother was, she was hammered. and she had, she said something to me. I don't even remember exactly what it was to this point, but she said something to me and I didn't like it. And, and I told her, shut up. And she, she threw the, she threw the church thing at me and she's like, Oh, that's what they're teaching you at the church you're going to. And it just turned into this, this thing. And, and I was getting a, a glass of ice water. I was getting ice out of our refrigerator and she went from behind me and tried to kick me. And like, I grabbed her leg and I'm like, don't kick me. You know, what, what are you, what are you doing? And 
Um, so they forbid me to go. I was not allowed to go on this trip that I was involved with. And my dad came home and he was like needed to defend the honor of, of his bride or something. I don't know. Yeah. You know, it, it was just like, it was a mess. It turned into this thing. And, and that really just kind of just pushed me for years. I blamed them. Um, but it gave me what it gave me the excuse just to say, you know what, like, if you can't beat them, you might as well join them. And the, as soon as I got off of, of, of being grounded, um, I, uh, I went to a party and, and I had my first drink. And when I had my first, I didn't have my first drink. I had my first lots of drinks. I had, uh, um, I think everybody had, you had that one other parent. So like on this side, I had the parents that were, you know, they were going to church and, and, you know, and helping encourage you to do the right thing. And then I had this other parent who you, all you had to do was just show up and you could take her to the liquor store and she'd buy you whatever you wanted. And so I, I went there and um, had a, she bought me a pint of Jack, uh, pint of Jack Daniels and I drank the pint and then went back about three or four hours later and then went and got, you know, a case of beer and, and, and it was just, I was good at it. And it was, again, now I had another like claim to fame because everybody knew I had never drank and now I'm at this party and I'm drinking and I just drink all this alcohol and I was functioning and I was having a good time and everything was cool. And I just, I just stayed in it. Um, that was my, that was my new, my new badge of honor was the guy who could, who could drink a lot and, and still be the life of the party. And what did it do for you when you first drank? Did it, what was the effects? And when I first started drinking, I was, I was really happy I was really happy go lucky um like really I, I don't want to say reserved because I was more outgoing but I was I was able to at least like well, how I am I envisioned myself was I was obviously my inhibitions were were relaxed but I was just able to kind of engage with people in a way that I was not ever really able to engage with them before and had a lot of, uh, you know, that, I love you, man. You know, those deep, deep midnight, you know, conversations, yeah. uh, and, yeah. you know, and it just felt, just felt really connected to people, uh, in a way that I was not able to connect before. And the only thing that I could quite the difference to was before I drank or now I drank and before I didn't, um, but yeah, that just set it off to uh, a couple years um, of pretty regularly. If I wasn't, I'd graduate high school, uh, and you know, I had a job, and I was I was working. And the guy I, I worked with, he would stop every Friday was payday, and he would go. He was a raging alcoholic. He drank wild turkey like it was Gatorade. So he was <laughs> he would go and get. Um, he'd go get him a couple of bottles and he'd get me one. And it just, that was the thing. Come, come Friday night till I went back to work on Monday. I just drank and drank and drank. And, uh, finally ended up joining the military, uh, a year after high school, uh, I had a buddy of mine who was in the Marines and he had came home from boot camp, And so we were having a party and he was telling me all about it. And I was, I made the decision to join the Marines while I was 
heavily intoxicated, you know, cause that's when you make most of your important life decisions. Um, so I went to, went to the recruiter's office, still, still lit. And the recruiter was like, you've been drinking. And I was like, Oh, well, yesterday he's like, come back tomorrow when, when you're sober and, and let's talk. So I went back to the recruiter's office and, uh, signed up on mother's day of this was completely a coincidence. I didn't do this on purpose, but, uh, mother's day, 1998 was the day that I left to go to boot camp. Um, and then at that point, that was the first time that I had had more than probably about three or four days dry, uh, in almost a year and a half, two years from when I had first started drinking. Um, went three months, couldn't drink, you know, that was part of the, that was part of the, part of the thing, uh, did really well in boot camp. Uh, I got meritoriously promoted at the end of, of our boot camp cycle, uh, came home for, for leave after boot camp, and, you know, picked it right back up and, you know, started partying again. Um, eventually got to my, <clears throat> to my duty station and, and for me, like now I can go back and I can look at my story and I can see uh, different events where like I, I do not believe that I would be where I'm at today if I did not um, have my relationship with God, if I did not have a, a, a regular you know, conversation with Jesus throughout the course of, of my day now, because um, I can look back at, at things and events that happened and see where I do believe he was calling me and he was trying to keep me from protect me from myself. And, and I, I would deny that, that protection, if, if that makes sense. Um, the first night I got to my permanent duty station, I was in what they call the receiving barracks. And I was in this barracks, there's 400 beds in it, but I'm in there all by myself. And it was a Wednesday night. And a couple of the a couple of the Marines that were stationed there already, they were a little older. They came to the receiving barracks and they're just wearing regular clothes. I, I had no idea who they were at the time. And they, they invited me to go to church. And I said, no, no, I'm good. I'm just going to rest. And, you know, I'm going to get picked up and go to my, my command tomorrow. And, and, and I'm fine. They're like, are you sure? And they were, you know, they were talking to me, trying to share the gospel with me. And, you know, I'd been to church, you know, before, so I knew everything. I didn't really want to talk to them. So I was just kind of like, yeah, man, I'm, uh, no, I'm good. You know, and there's no problem. Everything's fine. You know, um, yeah, I'm good. I'm just going to rest tonight. And, they, and the last thing he said to me before they left was, are you sure you don't want to go with us tonight? He said, because this can be a very evil place if you're not careful. And I said, nah, it's everything's fine. Uh, no problem. So I, I stay, went to sleep. Next day I get up, get picked up. I go to command my command. I get issued my, my barracks. And one of my, uh, one of my corporals that were in my, my specific unit had came by to make sure we were getting all squared away. And I got my stuff put in the room. And he's like, hey, do you drink? And I said, yeah. He said, all right, well, when you get finished here, come downstairs. I said, but I'm not 21 yet. He said, no, nah, it doesn't matter. Just come on downstairs. You know, so like on Wednesday night, I had people trying to take me to come to church with them. And I'm like, no, I'm good. And then Thursday afternoon, I have, you know, somebody offering me a drink. And I said, yeah. And that, 
that was it. It was the lifestyle. I mean, everybody has the, the traditions of the Marines, you know, we were, you know, born in a bar and it's just part of, of the lifestyle. And, and truly, I mean, it, it really was part of, of what we did. We would, we would work hard, train hard, get done and then drink every single day. If we weren't deployed or in the field or whatever, that's just what we did. Um, pretty, pretty regularly. Um, I, uh, do you feel <clears throat> I, they encouraged you, I guess, because the other guys were drinking. Do you think that helped progress your actual addiction problems? Yeah, absolutely. Well, because it wasn't, it wasn't a problem. It wasn't a problem because everybody did it. And it was just part, uh, it was part of the routine. Like it was, it was just as normal as getting up, brushing your teeth and going for a three mile run every day. Like that was just the, the, the part of the process of, of what we did and how we did it. And we would see guys, you know, the only time that it was a problem was when somebody couldn't control it. Right. And I, and I put that in quotation marks. Uh, we had a guy who had, um, he'd went out, he was heavily intoxicated. He got in a, he got in a crash, busted up his face. And he was the, he was now the example of what not to do. And it, it was never it's like, it was, if you're not 21, don't drink. Right. That was, that was what the leadership would say. And if you don't have a plan in place to do the right thing, whatever, you know, to take a cab, have somebody drive you, then this is what you're going to be, you know, and they show this guy, I mean, he had just gotten out of the hospital, you know, he's in the middle of this big formation, his head's all swollen up from, from his injuries. So even when it was, when it was a problem, it wasn't communicated like it was a problem. It was just be smarter. So you don't end up like this guy. Does that make sense? Yeah, they, they didn't offer you any addiction support or resources. Correct. There, you know, there, there, there wasn't. Um, so in so that was nineteen ninety eight, uh, August of August of two thousand. You know, I had been in for a couple of years now. You know, things were just kind of going going along, and I ended up being that guy. Uh, I was, uh, had a friend of mine, he lived out in town. I'd go to his house on the weekends. We would have a barbecue. We were drinking. And when I would go there, his wife would take my keys because she knew that I was, I was the guy who liked to go for a ride after he had had some. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> so she took my keys somehow to this day. I don't remember what, what happened. Um, but I would wake up three days later in a hospital. I had, I had got found the keys. I had gotten in my car and I was on a, a back road somewhere in North Carolina. I couldn't find it today if I had to. Um, the road made a, made a sharp left curve and I went head first into a, uh, into a culvert. Oh, um, into a what? A, a big concrete culvert, a ditch. Okay. Um, so a car went down off and hit the concrete drainage ditch uh, and my face hit the steering wheel, broke my jaw in three places. Um, like I say I woke up three days later, you know, in the hospital. Luckily, I was blessed. Nothing, nothing too serious. Um, 
because of the circumstances that happened in that moment. I didn't really even get in trouble for that because they had to transport me from one hospital to another hospital and all of that. And they never took a, they never took a BAC. So uh-huh. I had gotten charged with a reckless driving, which was nothing <laughs> in comparison to what it could have been. So I ended up having to, you know, pay a ticket, never lost my license. I didn't really get any, any significant consequences for that. Uh, my command knew they assumed that I was drinking, um, but they couldn't prove it. So they did force me to go to what they called extensive outpatient alcohol therapy. So for five days, for eight hours a day, I went to counseling. So the military provided that? They did. I had no choice. That's not bad. That sounds like a good thing. Yes, it would have been a good thing if I would have embraced it as a resource that was helpful and not as a punishment. Okay. I I understand that. Yeah. It's all based on, it's all based on your perspective at the time. Absolutely. Absolutely. I still did not have a problem. Um, I was still, it was just something that happened and some, some way I justified my lack of problem with, I didn't get in trouble. Right. If I if I would have gotten trouble, then I could probably make the case that I had a problem, but I didn't. So I didn't I didn't have a problem. But the reality is I'm eating, you know, blended macaroni and cheese um, <laughs> because I, my, my, my mouth was wired shut for 30 days. I couldn't I couldn't eat solid food. Um, and three days, three, four days after getting out of the hospital with my jaw wired shut, couldn't eat solid food. I'm still standing at the barracks, you know, drinking beer. Um, it was, it was, you know, it was, it's insane to go back and think about it, you know? So I'm on these painkillers, uh, I'm on painkillers, I'm drinking beer and it's just, it's just starting, you know, like it's already spiraling out of control. It's just now it's like, um, I'm, I'm a walking, I'm walking evidence that there is a problem with, with this guy. Cause you know, in the military, like you got to shave every day. So, but my face was so busted up. I I was allowed not to shave for a while. So everybody like, what happened to you? What happened to you? My mouth is wired shut. I'm standing there at the barracks, you know, and I'm drinking, I'm telling this story while I'm drinking. And it was still just kind of like par for the course. It was just such a a, a normal thing. Um, So fast forward to uh, September 11th, 2001. Uh, my, our unit is getting ready to do a standard Mediterranean deployment. Um, and then the towers, the towers came down. We were on, I was in Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. When that happened, we, we heard, we heard the first tower go down on the radio, watched the second tower go down on, uh, on BBC, uh, their, their website. And it was technology's changed a lot in the last 20 years. So getting that one website up was, was difficult, um, so we, uh, we saw that happen. We knew we were ne- kind of next in line to deploy September 18th. We would deploy, uh, we left, uh, we had, it was that quick. That's, that's pretty. Yeah, we were, we, like I said, we were already, uh, they call them Marine expeditionary units. So we were the next, we were the next Mew that was to deploy. So we were, we were qualified. All the gear was packed. I mean, it was just, 
it, we were weeks away from from deploying normally because we all you're, there's a there's a marine expeditionary expeditionary unit in the Mediterranean all the time year round um, has been for years. So we were we were going to replace do a turnover with the expeditionary unit that is already in that theater. Um, so we ended up leaving about a week earlier than we should have because of the events that had taken place. Uh, we stopped in Egypt, did a short training op, then went and sat in the Indian Ocean. And December, December 2nd, 2001, we, uh, we flew into Pakistan. And then from Pakistan, we flew into uh, Kandahar uh, and held uh, Kandahar International Airport for the next four months. Uh, and so the army came in so that was very very much at the beginning of of the war we were the first uniformed non-special operations uh forces that were in kandahar after 9-11 in afghanistan after 9-11 when you were deployed you were in afghanistan were you still drinking so no um, we did not have the ability to drink in in Afghanistan, so that was. Yeah, I didn't know if anyone was able to sneak it in or anything. Like yeah, that. no, uh, we had. Um, uh, there was there was a couple of guys that we had had some things like if you're deployed, if you're if you're on the water for I forget the time period, but you get like you know two beers every. 60 days or 90 days or something so they would put beer tents on the flight deck and you get your two beer rations so there was a lot of guys that didn't drink so you're trying to like hustle deals like hey man you know i'll buy your two you know so there were a couple of opportunities there a couple of guys that snuck in a bottle here or there so we did have uh, we did drink when we weren't supposed to prior to our deployment um those figure september 18th to december 2nd if there was anything there that could have been consumed, it was gone. Um, so when we actually, when we actually went into Kandahar, um, yeah, it was, it was, it was all about business and um, pretty much, pretty much a dry zone uh, until we, until we got back to the States, which would have been uh, early, early March, um, early March, 2002. I'm sorry, May, early May, 2002. Were you scared in Afghanistan? No. Um, no. I think, so our experience was a lot different than, say, guys that ended up going to the same place five years, ten years later. Um, it was it, it was just a different experience. It, one, it was new. wasn't a whole lot of politics involved with it. The time of the year played a factor in it because it was starting. It was cold. It was winter, so a lot of the a lot of the Taliban forces had kind of hid uh, in, in in the mountainous regions to stay away because you know, the air campaign was nuts. I mean, we're just dropping bombs, you know, everywhere. So we were we were pretty safe, and just all of that training and you know they they you know everybody's heard you know the the things you know that people say about marines and stuff and we're really just you know cuckoo for cocoa puffs <laughs> and um you you know there was five thousand of us you know so we were i was probably in the safest place on the planet at that time around five thousand very angry marines that hadn't had the ability to drink a beer in three months you know what i'm saying so <laughs> um 
Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I think the uh, the first night that we had gotten engaged by by the Taliban, um, there were. Um, you know, that was that's an experience. I don't I don't think you'll ever forget the first time that you you get in a gunfight or, or get surrounded by a gunfight. But, you know, we, we you train for certain things and then when something happens, you just you just react to it and you do what you need to do. And, and you don't ever really think about it again. Uh, it's just part of it uh, until, you know, years later. I mean, some guys, I mean, you see what's happening with, you know, guys that were Vietnam era vets and, and the lack of care that they had coming back out, you know, they're just now I met a, I met a vet from Vietnam. It was like two months ago. He had just started counseling, you know, just started counseling and he had already, you know, five divorces and, you know, like there was just such a, a different uh, process in, in back then. And even in, in the beginning of my career, when we got out of Afghanistan and we came home, like I got out, my, my contract was up and I signed some papers. I turned in my gear and I left, you know, they had no plan in place to really kind of, you know, transition a service member back out to, to the civilian world. It was just like, Hey, thanks. Here's your piece of paper. Go. Um, it's gotten better now from what I, from what I understand. Um, but it took, you know, two decades of, of conflict in order to put some processes in place to try to make sure that we're sending, you know, veterans back out in the civilian world with, with, with the proper, with the proper care or access to it. Um, so no, uh, long-winded no wasn't scared um wasn't, wasn't scared uh, probably was more scared after I got out without really having a plan on what I was going to do next all right that was probably more scary than being in the middle of a uh, of a war zone uh so I got out in 2000, 2002 and got a job, started going to college, picked the bottle right back up again and um, found it really difficult to find a place to fit. You know, I was, I was now older than freshman in college, you know, and I had already been, I'd already been shot at and I'm sitting in classes with kids that were still living with mom and daddy, right? We were, we were not the same. And so it was, it was very difficult to, to try to kind of reintegrate. So it was just, you know, I, I, I've always been a hard worker. I went to work for this company, worked my way up, you know, pretty quickly from working in a warehouse to um, uh, being in sales and um, ended up quitting college because I'd gotten promoted to a place where I was, I was making, you know, I was making real good money. I was making six figures at, at 23 years old. And, what, were you, what were you doing? I was sales. I was doing, we, we were, I was working for a distribution company and uh, I just get on the phones, get on the phones, selling our, selling our products. And you know, it was a good company. It was a, you know, a good legit product. You had a specific customer base. And, and I fell, you know, fell in the routine, you know, it's like, if I, if I, if I called this many people, I was going to make this many sales and it was just, it was just routine. Um, and it was, it was, it was, it was, it was good. It was a, it was a good experience. Um, 
you know, so I was, you know, making, making good money and, uh, I was single, didn't have any kids, bought my first house when I was 20, 24. Um, you know, had all the toys, had the new truck, had the motorcycle, you know, I was just well, living life and, you know, live, <clears throat> lived at, at the local bars and was always functioning, man. Like I would, I, I, I could drink till three, four o'clock in the morning, hit the rack until six and get up and get to work and make money I needed to make and handle my responsibilities. And that was just a, a, a constant uh, routine. And, and everybody that I had immersed in my life was all doing the same exact thing. It was so absolute. It was just normal. Um, and then in 2000, 2005, uh, was, uh, was a guest at a wedding. Uh, the wedding had a, uh, had an open bar afterwards at the wedding reception. I took full advantage of that. And, and when it was time to leave, uh, someone had called me a cab. I would learn later that after about two minutes, I was tired of waiting for the cab. I, I got in my vehicle and I left, I left the venue. I was driving down the street and after I don't know, about 10 minutes or so of leaving the venue, I would, uh, I would crash into and total a police car. Um, didn't realize it was a police car at first. I knew I had hit something and I'd hit it really hard. So I got out of, I got out of my vehicle and started walking back towards the car that I had hit. And, and by the time I looked up, there was multiple police officers with guns drawn and, you know, get on the ground and, you know, we could talk about you know, different time, different place. I'm not here to tell the story. Um, so uh, needless to say, I was arrested. Um, I was, there was really no denying, you know, there was an accident. I hit a cop. So I'm pretty much feeling like I was, I was, I was screwed. You know, like this was, this was it. Uh, went to, went to, uh, went in front of the judge the next morning, the you know, public defender came by and was like, Hey, look, here's your, here's your charges. These are your options. What do you want to do? And I was, the only charge they gave me was a, a, a for a first offense DUI. Now, considering that what I did, um, this was, and I said, well, what about the accident? And she looked through the paperwork. She's like, this is what you got. What do you want to do? Uh, like, okay, no contest. So I pled no contest, uh, was released later that afternoon. I got my, my driver's license was suspended for six months. I had a couple thousand dollars in fines that I needed to pay and I needed to go through, um, I want to say it was like a year of, of counseling. Um, I, I finished everything except for the counseling really soon. I had my license back in 90 days. It was, it was like a slap on the wrist. Um, I did part of the counseling that I had to go. It was expensive. It was, it was very, very expensive. Um, so I was able to go through the VA and, and as a combat veteran, I, I didn't have to pay for it. It was a service that was provided. So the, the court allowed for that counseling to, to be, uh, met the qualifications for, for the, uh, uh, for the, for the sentencing that I had gotten. So, so there was some help that came out of this. Yes. Yes, there was. Um, 
Uh, I went, uh, it was one hour a week for one year, uh, face-to-face with, um, with a counselor through the VA. Um, and then I went to, um, I had some requirements, some minimum requirements to, to attend like AA and, and some different, you know, 12 step type programs like that. Um, so I, I did that for, I did that for a year and, uh, I was sober for a year, didn't have a drop, didn't really have a, a desire to, to drink in that year. I think it was the, the shock of, of what had happened and, and how bad it could have been. I mean, it, like I could have, I could have kept the man from going home to his family that night. Uh, it was, I mean, it was, I hit him hard. If I'd have hit him three feet the other way, it would have been a, an entirely different outcome for him and maybe even for myself. And it, it was, it was bad. So, you know, going through the counseling and that was my real first experience of, uh, you know, the first meeting with the counselor, he asked me the same question you did when you started. And that was, more of a statement. He's like, tell me about your childhood and um, started unpacking all that stuff. And, and uh, you know, it was, it was, it was a mess, you know, and uh, we'd go through that. And then, you know, he, he, he would see, we got to the, to the part where I was in my teenage years that I was kind of, you know, I was going to church and I was involved in people that were in that space and not closing down the bar space. And he was like, you know, I tell all of these stories. He's like, that is one, one, one moment in time where you seem like you got a little bit of joy and you got a little bit of happiness from those memories. He's like, do that again. And so I did. And, you know, and started, I got, got back. I'm, I'm grown now, you know, so I started going to a local church and was getting involved and, um, things were good. And I was, you know, I was, I was sober, um, at a, at a year, I, I think now we would call it a dry drunk, you know, like at a, at a year it was okay. I don't want to be that guy anymore. Um, but I want to be, I want to be normal. I want to be, I want to be the guy who can go out and have a drink and, 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 and be normal. That, that, that lie that I had gotten in my head, um, like, well, I'll just, you know, I go get a glass of wine. Like you should be able to drink a glass of wine. That's, that's, I'd stand in the mirror and I would, I would say that to myself and, you know, the glass would, would turn into a bottle and, you know, the bottle would turn. And after, after a year of sobriety, almost a year to the day, I would find myself in handcuffs again. Um, that, that, no, no cool story with that one. I didn't crash in anything. I, I didn't use a blinker. I was coming from my, uh, my 10 year high school reunion. And uh, I didn't use a blinker when I changed lanes. So um, cop pulled me over second DUI within five years. Um, there were some other circumstances that that had were were kind of surrounding it. So by the end of the um, by the end of it all, it would it would take everything that I had to avoid going to prison. Uh, I was looking at five years in in prison. That's what the state wanted to give me. Um, uh, I lost my job, so no more no more good six figure job. My driver's license was gone um, for five years. The 
Um, truck was repoed, house was going to get foreclosed on, motorcycle was going. Like, I mean, everything, every material thing that I had was was gone, and um, I was still kind of waiting for the final sentencing to be done because I was fully expectant that five years, what I was going to get my really, really expensive attorney was telling me that was probably the best that he was going to be able to get me. And, um, I was sitting in my house, uh, me and a 30 pack of MGD and my pistol. And, uh, my, my, my intent for that day was to, to drink enough to where I could numb myself to the pain enough to where I could put a bullet in my head and not have to deal with it anymore. And I was about halfway through that, that case of beer and I got a a literal knock at my door and it was, it was a friend of mine. It was one of the guys that I had went to church with as a teenager who he he stopped by randomly and he says, Hey man, what are you doing? Nothing. I'm just just hanging out. And he's like, well, I've heard you've been going through some stuff. And I said, yeah, man, you know, I got some, you know, some problems, you know, it's no big deal. It's going to work itself out. Cause clearly I'm not telling him that I'm just, I need him to go away so I can commit suicide. Um, he's like, well, why don't you come with me? I was like, where are we going? He's like, he's like, oh, we're going to go to church. And I was like, no, nah, man, <laughs> I'm, I'm drunk, dude. I've been drinking, you know, he's like, no, nah, come on. It'll be fine. So he convinces me to go. He saved my life in that moment. And, and he wouldn't know for years later that that's what he did. Um, he cared enough to come by, he knocked on my door. He didn't take no for an answer. He took me somewhere that, um, I, I had an encounter with God. I, I I didn't know that if it, if it was genuine because I was, I was under the influence. So I I went back the next day because they had, there was an event. It was seven days, uh, seven nights. So I went back the next night and had a very similar encounter with a relatively sober mind. And, and from that, that moment on, I was, I was in a better place. Um, I, I wanted to live. I wanted to be sober. And I started going to, um, I'm sure you've heard of it, Celebrate Recovery. Yep. I started, I started going to Celebrate Recovery. It's kind of a hybrid um, but it, it was, you know, faith-based, uh, 12-step program. Uh, I started doing that uh, on my own. And then my charges that I had, uh, somehow I went from five years in prison to 10 days in county jail. Uh, those 10 days in county jail, I was able to do over the course of five weekends. Um, so things just kind of started to, to line itself up to where it wasn't as bleak as I thought it was. And I just started this process where I'm just going to trust God and, and, and leave the things that I thought were normal behind and, and just started day by day, one day at a time, just working through the processes and, and doing the, you know, following the steps and doing the, the inventories and the spiritual inventory and all those different things to really try to get to a place where, why am I so mad? Why am I so depressed? Like, where, where is this stuff coming from? And just started unpacking that stuff through, through several years of, of real engagement. Um, but I had to get, I had to get people that were farther along that had been there, done that, that I could relate to that um, were able to, I don't, I've never liked the term sponsor. 
Like I just, it just makes me feel like we're like driving NASCARs with, you know, Nabisco on the side of our shirts or something, but, but I do like friends and accountability partners are, are, are important. And when I started to get those people that I was able to be open enough to say, you know what, no, I, I am an alcoholic, you know, like I'm a pretty bad alcoholic. My driving record would prove it. Uh, but when I was able to speak it and admit it, and and able to say you know like when i was having a weak moment you know i could pick up the phone and i could call somebody and say hey man let's go get coffee because if i don't go get coffee with you i'm probably going to the liquor store you know and it it took it took a while for those urges to go away um but my my focus shifted quickly but those urges were still there and the the years of 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 you know, just just bad habits put in place of things that I would do and how I would cope and all all of that. You know, I, I was able to get people in my life that were that genuinely cared and that had been there and understood or helped to you know pull me along when I couldn't. That's and, great to have um, community around yourself. We have a program ourselves. We have a ten step program, and the last step is the same thing as the other programs, which is giving back. You know. Mm-hmm. But, uh, definitely something. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think uh, most 12 step programs are written incorrectly. And, and, and the 12 step is usually that because I've had an experience. Now I'm going to go out. You know, I think if you're sober today, you've had an experience. So go out and, and tell somebody about your experiences, good or bad. Because um, there's a lot of people that don't don't take a step because they think they're alone. And and a lot of the 12 step world has kind of created this place where, hey, you be you get better. And then when you get better, then go tell somebody about it. And my personal opinion is that is wrong. If if you've managed to go 12 hours without a drink or or six hours without shooting up, that's a story that needs to be told because a lot of people don't get that opportunity. That's just sorry. I've got sidetracked for a second, but no, no. I think we need to encourage that as a as a as a, a a community of people that are in recovery or have been in recovery. Like if you're waiting for perfection, like I don't know what you're waiting for, right? Because we're never going to get perfect in, in our lives. We're still going to have something that's going to come up. It's going to be a struggle, and a lot of times, especially in that first you know six months to a year in recovery, we're just trying to learn how to deal with life again. You know, like the, the, if you if you started drinking at 16 and now you're 36, like you got 20 years of undeveloped emotional habits that you don't know how to deal with. You know, so if you just sit there and sit back and stay isolated, and that was me, like I was so emotionally immature when, when I got sober. Now I'm just getting flooded with all of these different these feelings like what what is this? what am I supposed to do with them? You know, cause prior to, it was just anger. Like I was either drunk or I was angry. And now you got all these other things coming in, you know, I, like I was 30 and I was 20, I was 30 when I had my first drink. When I was 29 is when it really started. 30 was when I had my last drink. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm so grateful for, for the people that, that cared and, gave me an opportunity to start, start leading in, 
in the recovery group that I was participating in and got, got involved with the church and the men's group that we were in. Cause you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of people, even inside of the faith community, you know, they might do the church thing and they're doing the men's groups and they're doing all of that, but they still got struggles and they still got addictions and they're just not talking about them. And they maybe not have, they're not resonating themselves like mine did, you know, mine did with, you know, silver bracelets in the back of a cop car. Uh, it was the, you know, the climax to that story. Um, so to be able to use where I've been to, to help lead and to help guide and just to be openly like, Hey, yeah, you know, I did a lot of stupid stuff and, and I'm here to help and I care. I mean, it's just been a blessing, you know, to be able to do that. So, you know, 14 years later, um, I've created, I've helped start two other, um, two other recovery programs and in two different churches over the last couple of years. I still currently lead one. Now we have between 40 and 50 people in attendance every week. Um, and uh, my phone, you know, it, it goes off a lot. We got a lot of people um, that, that are calling that are reaching out, you know, just the, the, the ramp up of the, you know, my thing was alcohol, but the opioid addiction, you know, process, uh, problem in this country is not, you know, I think everybody's affected by it, uh, at least at, on one level or another. Uh, so last last year alone, we had, um, I'm not sure quite where, if you know what this term is, but uh, we had uh, seven people Baker acted because they had made made comments that they were, you know, yep. suicidal. Yep. Yeah. So like, you know, we just do things like that and uh, just keep, you know, just keep pushing forward. So my last question for you is, do you have any advice for people watching and listening? The biggest piece of advice that I can give anyone is, one, understand that we're all going to go through something. And you have to ask for help. You have to ask for help. And if you ask... <laughs> and you don't get it, ask somebody else, right? Like the, the help is there. There are people that care. Sometimes when we start to open up initially, people don't know what to do with it or they think, I see people all the time, you know, and say, yeah, I used to have a drinking problem. And then I hear how they, I hear about their relationship with alcohol and their relationship with alcohol is, as bad or, or worse than mine was, but they don't see it as a problem. So if that's who you're going to, like, there is probably going to bless you off, you know? So it's finding the right people, ask for help. Don't be afraid to keep asking until you find someone that's going to sit you down over a cup of coffee and figure out where you're going through. This is the worst thing that we can do as, as addicts, as people in recovery or soon to be in recovery is to isolate and stay alone and just act like this is going to go away or that it's not a problem. Um, that's, that would be my advice, man. No, that's great advice. I appreciate that. So do you have anything else you want to add? My cliche is we're looking for progress, not perfection. So like I said earlier, like once you get started on your recovery, and, and I pray that everybody that is hearing this today is, is looking for a different way to lead 
their lives. And that is through the absence of, of drugs and alcohol. And once you get sober from the, the, that drugs and alcohol, and that's what I found that, that mine, it resonated with a bottle. My problems were in here. My problems were much deeper than the issues that resulted from, from the substance. So once you get that substance gone, be willing and be open to really digging into where you've came from, because it may suck, but you're going to be able to use your experiences to help other people in such a tremendous way that right now you can't understand it, but I've been able to do it. Millions of other people have been able to do it. I've started a, a YouTube channel. Uh, I am Will. And if we ever been to the recovery meeting, that's why I named it the way I named it. You know, I am Will and I, you know, I, I personally don't highlight somebody's addiction, right? Because you are a person and I believe that you're a person created in the image of God. And you, you may struggle with with drugs or alcohol or depression or sadness or gambling or any of the other multitude of things that us as humans can become addicted to. But at the end of the day, you're still a person that has value and that has purpose. Um, so I am Will. Find me on YouTube. And, and uh, I appreciate your time today. No, I appreciate you hopping on here and doing the podcast. Yeah, absolutely, man. Anytime, man. I got a, I got a whole list of folks, man. I'll, I'll, I'll help you get stacked up. <laughs> um, yeah, man. Sounds cool. Get them on the calendar. Absolutely. All right. For everybody watching and listening, I hope you like what you saw and heard. You could check us out on Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, Instagram. You can also find us at www.addicts-anonymous.com. There you'll find a bunch of different types of resources as well as our proof literature where we have a ton of articles that are free uh, to read. So that's all I have for today. I hope once again you like what you saw and heard, and until next time.